Eric. Scott. The average cost of college tuition in 1987. (laughs) I'm going to get depressed already. So between the years of 1986 and 1987, the average cost of college tuition at a public school or a public college over four years was $1,414 per year. What? In a private school, it was $6,658 a year per year over four years. So give or take, if you were to go there four years to a public school, you'd come out around about six grand in. Six grand would be a college tuition for four years. Now, flash forward to 2023. Average cost of attendance for a student living on campus at a public four-year in-state institution is $26,027 per year or $104,000 over four years. Mm. So I'm going to let that sink in. So for 1987, you could go to a four-year in-state institution for about $6,000. In 2023, you could go to an in-state institution for four years for $104,000 on average. It's, it's mind-boggling. I, I don't, it doesn't make sense at all. Has anything improved in that period of time to justify that cost hike? Like I don't. Because if you think about it, look at it this way. If you were working part-time at a mechanics right now, just doing oil changes and filling gas in a state that may or may not require somebody to pump your gas, I'm not sure how that, we'll talk about that later. You're not making enough money to send yourself to college. No, not at all. No. And I'm not even going to look at it, but if I was to, if I was to Google the average hourly income in 1987, I bet it's not that far off the average hourly income starting pay in 2023. Minimum wage. Let me guess though. You guess. Oh, you guess. I'm going to look up the number. Minimum wage in what? 89? Minimum wage in 1987. Oh, 87. I'm going to say like 325. Dude, that's close. $3.05 per <laughs> hour. Minimum wage in 2023. $16? $7.25. What? Well, it depends on the state, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, say for example, in like an average state, anywhere between seven and nine dollars. So say say seven, say on the low end, it's seven dollars. So in almost let's have a look from nineteen eighty seven till twenty twenty three, which just shy of forty years, right? Just shy of forty years. In forty years, the minimum wage has just about doubled. Just about doubled. In forty years, the cost of co- college tuition has went up. Like I'm terrible. This is where my math comes into play. Like 15, 15 times. Yeah. One of these things is not like the other. You know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It does not. I just think that's kind of fascinating because when we do start to talk about the movie that we're going to talk about today, the cost of his tuition has always been in my mind a little bit of a, an abstract idea because it's very important to the plot of this movie or into his motivations. And it's always been, yeah, this abstract idea of like, it must just be a shit ton of money. Now, let's have a look at America in 1987. He had all the money for four years, I believe. No, just his first year. Oh, just his first year. Just his first year of college tuition. He had saved up his first year of college tuition. We're still not going to tell you what we're talking about today. I mean, you know what we're talking about today because you clicked on the episode, but (laughs) in the interest of suspense, we're not going to mention it right now. (laughs) Just in case you blindly press play on this new episode because you're like so desperate to listen to us. You're like, I'm going to listen to anything they put out. I'm not even going to check what it is. New episode, boom, play. (laughs) Favorite podcast in the world. In 1987, median household income, $26,000. Cost of a gallon of gas, 95 cents. 
cost of a dozen eggs, 78 cents. Median household income, is that taking into account that more, most households have more than one person living in them? It's not a lot. No. Cost of a new home, $127,000. Brand new build home, I'm guessing. But I think that's on the high end. I'm sure you could probably buy a used home for a lot cheaper than that in 1987. You could have gotten pretty cheap, I would imagine, like $30,000 maybe. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. I was a kid in the 80s, so. So let's just hypothetically do this, okay? You're making $3.05 an hour, okay? And you're working part-time at a mechanics, uh, like an auto garage. So I'm guessing you're at school full-time, like regular high school full-time. So the only hours you can work are on the evenings. You're not working there every evening. So I'm guessing you're probably doing, on average, 20 hours a week, give or take, right? So you're making $3.05. You're working 20 hours a week. So you're making about 61 bucks a week. You do that for 52 weeks for a year. You're making $3,000 a year. Now, you got to take in the taxes into there. So you'd have to work in order to save up your first year of college tuition, which we said is about $1,500. That's almost, with the cost of living, you've got to buy your own gas. You've got to buy your own food if you're going out. You want to go out entertainment. You're buying art supplies because you're an artist. Okay, you buy new clothes, buy records. He has a pretty big record collection. A minimum one year it would take to save up that much money. Minimum. That's a lot of money to somebody in 1987. It's a decent amount now. I mean, I'd be happy if someone gave me that amount right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody give me $1,500 right now. I'd be like, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go buy a pair of earrings with it. I was going to say, I can buy <laughs> maybe the new iPhone. Oh yeah, right. Maybe the new iPhone, which is just like the old iPhone, but just made out of titanium. <laughs> yeah. So if you're a fucking mug. Um, okay. So let's have a look. So what happened in 1987, Eric? We are really going, I, I think this is interesting. I wanted to do this. Okay. So here's a list of major news events in the history, in history for the year 1987. The first Simpsons cartoon short is shown on the Tracy Ullman show during April. So the debut and I don't know, dear listeners, if we have any younger listeners, but that was kind of a big deal. So if you actually go back and watch The Simpsons, the first few episodes of The Simpsons, it's a completely different art style. It's very crude, very different, but it debuted inside the Tracy Ullman show. So that was a big deal. So number two, the popular television sitcom Full House debuts on ABC. Number three, I don't know what this is. Do you even know what this is? The Baby M case, the first case in an American court ruling on the validity of surrogacy. I have no idea. Never heard of that. Um, doesn't apply to me. I'm a man. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out. No, no. Does that affect the patriarchy? No, therefore I don't care. <laughs> Number four, Matthias Rust, a West German citizen, flew a small Cessna airplane into Moscow, landing in the Red Square. So he flew into the Red Square in Moscow, which is like totally locked out. So that's a big deal. I don't know why he did it, but he did it. I wonder what happened to him after that. He was probably put in prison. A cross-channel ferry capsizes outside the harbor of Zeebrugge in Belgium, killing 193 passengers and crew. So a bit of a catastrophe there. Something more related to America here. The United States President Ronald Reagan delivered his famous speech at the Berlin Wall in West Berlin. Number seven, the Great Southern British Storm of 1987. <laughs> I don't know what that was. Here we go. Uh, number eight, the Disney Corporation and France agree to create an amusement park. So that would be Disneyland Euro Disney, which is in France. I kind of remember it being a, didn't it turn out to be a catastrophe or something like that? No, no. I think it's still going to this is day. It? We could ask. Yeah. I mean, if there's any Disney adults listening to this, <laughs> please reach out, but only about that. And then otherwise don't contact us ever again. 
but we are curious about that. Number nine, Terry Waite, the special envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury in Lebanon, is kidnapped in Beirut. I remember that because that was all over the news when I was a kid, Terry Waite getting kidnapped. That was a big deal. Uh, Number 10, the US stock market crashes on Monday, October 19th in 1987 with a 508 point drop or 22.6 cent. Stock market was kind of rocky back then. So given, you know, the period of time that this movie is set in, roughly people weren't exactly in a period of prosperity. Like I suppose the 90s were in America. I suppose in the tail end of the 80s, in the Reagan era with Reaganomics, it wasn't exactly what you say the working man probably wasn't as prosperous. Oh, no, 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 no. I kind of remember a sense of classism in the 80s that's made its way around to the 2020s. Very interesting. I mean, that's the that's the highlights of what was going on in 1987. Just interesting period of time. I mean, you probably say that about any year if you go back. This like crazy shit happens all the time. Moving on through a tour of 1987 history. Let's <laughs> start pulling in a bit more towards movies, okay? Because I think all of this is going to kind of play in. In a way, I definitely think like the cost of living in the economic situation, as in, all, I wouldn't say all of John Hughes movies, but specifically, and here we go, we're going to talk about some kind of wonderful today. The cost of living and I guess the disparity between the wealthy and the poor is a big issue or a big topic or theme in this movie and its predecessor, Pretty in Pink. You basically can't escape it in this movie. The haves and the have-nots, you know, born on the wrong side of the tracks, trying to fit into a different social structure, social climbing, so to speak. So here we go. 1987, here's the domestic box office. I'm going to let you guess. See if you can guess any of these. This will be a fun game for our listeners, if you're still listening. What What is the number one grossing movie of 1987? Do you want some clues? I'll give you a clue. It's a sequel and it has an ex-Saturday Night Live superstar in it in a sequel to his biggest breakout role. And one of the co-stars of this movie is also in Some Kind of Wonderful. And it's not Judge Reinhold. <laughs> I, originally, I was going to say Ghostbusters 2, but I don't know if that's the... Nope. No. It's Beverly Hills Cop 2. Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, yeah, the father, the dad. A little bit of a tie in there. I'm going to have you guess the top three and then I'll tell you the rest. So what do you think it came in number two? And I'll give you a clue. It's a war movie. Which war? Well, if I tell you, it's so obvious. Platoon. Yes, correct. And then number three is a pretty troubling movie. I actually rewatched it recently. It recently had a Hulu original TV series based on it. It is about a relationship. Well, I wouldn't say a relationship. It's about somebody who makes a questionable decision whilst married to somebody that has catastrophic consequences. Basic instinct? Fatal attraction. So you're in the wheelhouse yeah, 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 yeah. of, you know, uh, risque adult thrillers. I think I was thinking fatal attraction, but... That's quite a split of movies for the top three. Could you imagine the top three movies in 2023 in the box office being <laughs> like so dramatically split in terms of like genre and like tone and theme? Here's the top 10. I'm going to read down the top 10, okay? So we have Bell Hills Cop 2 at number one, Platoon at number two, number three is Fatal Attraction, number four is The Untouchables, number five, Three Men and a Baby, number six, The Secret of My Success, a movie that I love and it's very dear to my heart with Michael J. Fox. Um, number seven, Stakeout, which is Emilio Estevez and Richard Dreyfus. Dreyfus, yeah, great movie. Actually, great movie. The first one, second one's terrible. Another Stakeout. First one, though, was really good. I didn't know they did a second one. Yeah, the second one has Rosie O'Donnell in. It's a terrible movie. 
But the first one's actually pretty good. Dreyfus is really good in that movie. Number eight, Lethal Weapon. Banger. Number nine, The Witches of Eastwick, which is another great movie. I, I rewatched that recently too. Really? Um, that movie holds up. Yeah, it's great. It's a not Walter Hill. It's a uh, George Miller. George Miller. Yeah, yeah. It's a George Miller movie. It's pretty interesting. That's a that's an oddball movie. It's pretty good. I don't think that movie gets made today. Not at all. Mm-mm. Especially with like a leading man, like a leading man like Jack Nicholson, who's just looks like shit in it, and he's like terrible. <laughs> He's all over that movie like a rush. He's talk about <laughs> chewing the scenery in that movie. Bloody hell. <laughs> Number 10 is another banger. It's Predator. Oh yeah. I saw that in the theater a couple times. Wow. A handful of times. One of the greatest scores in cinema history, in my opinion. The score for Predator is incredible. Incredible. And if anybody's doubting me, go and watch that movie and listen to the score. The score is so good and it's all over that movie. That's your top 10. But like in 1987, I'm just going to name some of the movies that came out. It's pretty wild. So the, apart from the top 10, here's some of the highlights. Robocop came out that year. Dirty Dancing came out that year. Full Metal Jacket came out that year. Wow. Talk about bangers. I mean, some really cheesy ones like The Golden Child and wow, Eddie <laughs> Murphy had two movies out that year. Planes, Trains and Automobiles, another John Hughes movie. The Running Man. The Lost Boys came out that year. The Princess Bride came out that year. Hollywood was on one that year. Yeah, they were in a space, which I love. Dennis Quaid movie. Raising Arizona came out that year. Wow. There's a lot of bangers came out that year. Wall Street came out that year. Angel Heart. Oh, wow. The Mission, Hellraiser, Ishtar came out that year. <laughs> Less Than Zero was this year. That's crazy. And to see, to hear that and then see how everything really kind of has stuck around. And, and then some of those have been remakes recently. Robocop recently remade. I think for me and you though, Eric, I think we're going down and naming these movies and like, oh my God, that, that movie came out this year. I think if you're younger than us, so I say, for example, like Chris or Daniel, who co-hosts on the podcast, I don't think that would be such of a big, I mean, I grew up with all, pretty much all of these movies I grew up with. I've seen so many movies on this top 100. I've seen like 75% of these movies easily, which is a lot. Yeah. Multiple times too, I'm sure. It's just so varied. That's what I like about it. I'm looking down here and apart from, there's a, uh, The Living Daylights came out this year. So apart from the Bond movie and the Beverly Hills Cop 2 being sequels, they got Star Trek um, 4, The Voyage Home. There's a handful where they're like, um, I would say sequels or ongoing seasons, but not a lot, like ongoing series of movies, but not a lot. A lot of these are just originals, one time, interesting movies, like a really, really eclectic mix of movies. Yeah. I mean, it was a really original year produced a lot of sequels off of those movies too. Why do you think Some Kind of Wonderful came in in the top 100 for the box office for that year? 75? No, it's actually higher. It came in at 58. Oh, okay. Which is weird. So outperformed a few movies that you wouldn't think it would outperform. I don't remember people talking about it or being that popular in the way that, say, Pretty in Pink was. I don't think it is. I don't really remember anyone saying anything about this movie. Even to this day. I'll mention movies, you know, and people do the, you know, the usual, what's your favorite movie question. I'll veer between this and Pretty in Pink, as we've discussed. But every time I say Pretty in Pink, everybody's like, oh yeah, they know of course, it. But yeah. a lot of times when you say Some Kind of Wonderful, a lot of people haven't seen it. It's crazy. It's essentially a remake. <laughs> it's a do-over. It's 100% it's a do-over, which doesn't make sense to me because what were they trying to do over? Because Pretty in Pink was pretty much, it was original, it was... I don't want to say it's flawless, but 
it had a little bit of everything. It had a good comedy, good drama, angsty, teenage silliness, incredible soundtrack. I really don't understand what they were trying to do over or get or get right, I should say. I don't know the whole ins and out with uh, John Hughes and why he chose to write this. I don't know why he wrote this in chronologically, like personally, why he wrote this. Did he write this? Is this a script that he had pre Pretty in Pink? Or is this just a revision of it? Or was he directly trying to address something that he, he felt was missing in Pretty in Pink? I don't know. And maybe it's like some film historian could fill us in on that. But I don't know the ins and outs and that. If I had to guess, if I had to hazard a guess, I think this movie at least in my mind, plays as a reaction to the ending of Pretty in Pink. So it plays as a counter to that. After watching it, I can totally see what you're saying there. And we'll get into it when we start talking about the movie, just in case uh, any listeners haven't seen it. I don't want to start explaining things if you, if you know, we'll kind of give you the breakdown of the plot, but there's a lot of characters in this who are direct inversions of their counterparts in Pretty in Pink. So essentially this is Pretty in Pink, just in a way like gender flipped. Not entirely, but it does link up. A lot of things do link up, but it doesn't link up entirely. There's disconnects between the two, but the archetypes of the characters are more or less identical. With the family dynamic thrown in there too, because Pretty and Pink, you really didn't have, you really didn't have a family dynamic. You had Harry Dean Stanton, father, al- alcoholic, kind of absent in her life sort of deal. Mother was gone, but there w- really wasn't a family drama happening at all in there. That's the only thing that was kind of almost in in addition to that original movie. What's some kind of wonderful about? Eric, do you want to give our listeners a kind of a brief plot synopsis? Your POV character or, or the character that you're supposed to kind of root for, I guess you would say his name is Keith. And it is your basic high school drama, you know, a kid who is on the other side of the tracks is infatuated by a young Leah Tom Thompson, who is also from the other side of the tracks. So they're they're kind of in the same stratosphere. She's going out with a rich guy and trying to mingle within that crowd. And he has a tomboy friend played by Mary Stuart Masterson, who is kind of secretly has feelings for Keith, as you come to find out. But it's just that it's that basic drama. Like Keith goes to school. He has talent. His father is pressuring him to go to college. He's not really interested so much in college. Throughout the entire movie, there's that narrative plus his pursuing of the, you know, the the sacred unicorn, the one that can't be had sort of deal and how that drama kind of plays out. You've seen this movie a hundred times before. You've, if you've seen Pretty in Pink, you've seen this movie, but this is there's just a few different touchstones that to kind of take place from beginning to end. And like we said before, it is a quintessential do-over. This is the do-over that didn't need to happen. It's like Pretty in Pink, the sequel, almost in a way. It's funny, just to touch on, so Keith, who is very much infatuated by the popular and beautiful Amanda Jones, just to give you, you said the untouchable unicorn or like the the one that got away or the, this, this, this dream of a girl that you could never get. Just to quote Keith's sister, plenty of people <laughs> have got into college, but only a precious few people could say the same about, about Amanda, Amanda Jones. Jones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to read this out real quick. If this is just uh, the first few uh, paragraphs from Roger Ebert's review of Some Kind of Wonderful, which was 
obviously from the year 1987. If you're interested, Ebert give it three stars, which I guess is a thumbs up. And here's his opening opening spiel from his review. And I think it's actually, it really sums up how I feel about this movie. Most movies are not about people. Most movies are about things. And in the category of things I include, those movie stars who have become such icons that they, rather than their characters, perform the adventures in movies. Hardly ever do we get an American movie about adults who are attempting to know themselves better, live better lives, get along more happily with the people around him. Most American movies are about the giving and receiving of violent pain. (laughs) It's a little dramatic. (laughs) That's why I look forward to John Hughes' films about American teenagers. His films are almost always about the problems of growing up and becoming a more complete person. What really resonated with me from that opening paragraph, I didn't bother to read the whole thing because nobody's opinion on some kind of wonderful is going to change my opinion on some kind of wonderful. But what really resonates with me is the line, hardly ever do we get an American movie about adults who are attempting to know themselves better, live better lives, and get along more happily with the people around him. And upon rewatching this movie recently, and I've seen this movie, I don't know about you, Eric, I've probably seen this movie in excess of a hundred times, minimum. I haven't seen it that many times, but I've seen it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely my second most watched movie of all time. Upon rewatching it now, one thing I really, really resonated with me about this movie is the notion that it's a movie about people who are all genuinely trying to get better in trying to understand one one another. And also there's so many resolutions that are made in this movie and the plot. We have a lot of arcs where people go on a journey of self-discovery and a lot of those arcs are closed in a way that a lot of other movies aren't, in a way that Pretty in Pink isn't. It actually addresses a lot more than Pretty in Pink does. The characters are a lot more fleshed out in this movie than they are in Pretty in Pink. The characters are actually given space to have their own journey and their own discovery which they do not have in Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink essentially really only follows Andy. We're introduced to Blaine, and we're introduced to Steph, and we're introduced to Ducky, and we're introduced to Andy's father. Outside of Andy, all of those characters really don't grow or change or develop. They kind of say the same, with the exception of Ducky towards the end of the movie. Iona? Yes. She does have a tiny bit of an arc. She does. She kind of gets her shit together a little bit by the end. But what really struck me about this time with Some Kind of Wonderful is... The movie really, it's about Keith, but the movie's also really about Watts, which is Mary Stuart Masterson's character. It's really also about her. And it's really also about Amanda Jones. Amanda Jones, for a figure of his desire and like this icon of lust and this idealized version of this high school girl who you can't, you can't get with the popular girl, she's really fleshed out and she actually grows and changes throughout the movie. She has an own, a revelation about her circumstances. She's a fully fleshed out character. Watts is a fully fleshed out character. Keith's parents, now, with it, obviously his sister's there for comic relief, his little sister. He has two little sisters, but his eldest of his little sister, little sisters is kind of the comic foil for him. But she also kind of has an arc too, where she is very much trying to fit in. She's the, the hyper version of Keith in terms of she is obsessed with the haves, the rich kids, the popular kids. So she's very excited when Keith starts to um, try to date Amanda Jones and she sees as an opportunity for her social social stature to increase. She has a revelation about that too with the events that unfold. She kind of has an arc. It's a mini arc, but she kind of does. So I think what's really, really refreshing about this movie and what really drew me back into the movie way more than Pretty in Pink, and I've seen Pretty in Pink so many times, is I feel like the characters are so much richer and so much more interesting. Because Ducky in Pretty in Pink 
he's the oddball outsider. But that's all he is. We never get to find out anything about him. We never really get to find out where he came from. There's hints given because the fact that he lives in a, like a squat house, <laughs> which is you know like a tall shithole. I was going to say you at least you probably assume he might be an orphan. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Or like straight up homeless. But with Watts, granted, she she kind of lives in a similar situation. Keith goes to visit Watson one time, and she's playing drums, and he goes and hangs out in a house, and. We can tell that she obviously is probably further down the poverty ladder than even Keith is. Keith is very much from blue collar, working class family, but you get a sense that Watts is living in kind of a broken home almost, or she lives with a brother, I think. I don't think she lives with her parents. I think she lives with a brother. And I don't know where I got that from, but I feel like that's what it is. We get to see her living in a bit more of an impoverished state. Her character though is fully fleshed out. We get to understand her emotions, her desires what she's going for. We get to see her interact more with the other kids at school, how she's trapped simply because she just doesn't fit into the social norms of the time. I feel like Watts, bless her, if this is 2023 and she was going to high school, she'd be the cool kid. I think so. Yeah, definitely for her time as far as high school. The only thing I would push back on as far as character go, I feel like the parents are a little bit one-dimensional. I don't know that the parents are fully fleshed out with the exception of when there's that confrontation towards the end, you get a little bit more kind of insight into the father, the mother, not so much so, but everybody else, yeah, is fairly fleshed out. And I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But when he has that confrontation about Keith, about him blowing his first year's college tuition, dear listener, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to give you a full plot breakdown of the movie because- Chances are, if you listen to this, you've seen the movie. If you haven't, I do suggest you do watch it, but I'm not going to go beat by beat exactly what happens. Suffice to say, I'll, I will. I'll give you a quick one, a quick breakdown. So basically, Keith is obsessed with Amanda Jones. He's more or less obsessed with the idea of Amanda Jones as opposed to the person Amanda Jones, which will come back in, as we talk about the movie, some great writing later on where she confronts him regarding that, regarding his infatuation with her, that he's not really chasing her. He's chasing the ideal of her which I think is really interesting. All this time, Watts, who is his best friend, is quietly pining for him in the background. She's obviously, she's clearly obsessed with him. He is oblivious to this fact because he's kind of self, self-absorbed, self really, as most young men are, as most teenagers are, for that matter. So he doesn't really notice Watts's affections towards him. So he, he's pursuing her, Amanda Jones aggressively. So what he decides to do is because he wants to try and impress her and also he wants to try and fit in he has been working at a, a garage all this time, saving up for college tuition. His father's really pushing him to go to college. What he decides to do is rather than do that, he takes Amanda Jones out on this big epic date. And with this epic date, he spends his first year college tuition to buy her some earrings as a token, which is why A, what he thinks that she wants and B, because he just wants to do it for the fact that he can do it because he wants to be able to spend that money. He wants to fit in or have this kind of idea of fitting in to whatever that social structure is. And all of this time, Amanda Jones has been pushing back because she has been in a relationship, I guess a toxic, abusive relationship <laughs> with her boyfriend, who is in this movie, the surrogate for Steph, for Steph. James Spader's character in Pretty in Pink, played by Craig Schaefer. Which I will say is a cruel, a crueler version of what Steph is. To Steph, there was a certain amount of charm Exactly. And, and an endearment. And there was just something, there was a way that Spader played him that he, he was just had that, that smarmy charm to him that Craig Schiffer's Hardy Jen's 
it's just a cruel character. He's like the uber cruelness of Steph. That's 100% the best way to describe him. If you would, he's like Steph minus the personality. Exactly. Yeah. He has all of his inherent toxic masculinity and cruelty minus any of the charm of wit or grace of James Spader. 100%. Yeah. 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 Now, is that to do with the writing or is that to do with the performance? I think it's kind of to do with the performance. I don't think Schaefer could have pulled off that Steph role at all. I mean, this this was his attempt at it, but he is going off the script. So I tend to think that it's the writing more than it is the acting choices. I think Hughes wrote Hardy to be like this ultimately cruel character. And I don't don't know why. I really don't know why. I Maybe he wanted to examine what it would be like for Steph to get with Andy or like them to be in a relationship. But that makes me think he really didn't understand Steph when he wrote him. That's a good take. I like that take. I think too, if you think about with Steph, Steph really, Steph exists to put a face to this institution that Blaine's a part of. He's like, his character exists to be like the ultimate version of that institution and in that lifestyle, in which case he's very uh, debaucherous, which is, which is also fun because he wouldn't want to be, you know, who wouldn't we want to be at high school and be fabulously wealthy? <laughs> That's really his purpose to exist, to push that notion across. Hardy Jens is really, he makes some decisions. Like we don't really, we spend time with James Spader, but it's, it's, it's fleeting. But Hardy Jens really is... He does worse things, arguably worse things, because he treat, he's constantly cheating on Amanda Jones. He is almost aggressive with her in the way he pursues her. And then he also is playing like a lot of like mind games and a lot of toxic, he has a lot of toxic traits that you would have, They're like very controlling, very manipulative. He also is, the, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe, but he is like the shittier version of Steph, 100%. So ultimately, uh, Amanda's, trying to get out of this terrible relationship. That's why she agrees to go on this big date with Keith to basically, A, I think to prove to herself that she doesn't need to be with Hardy Jens and she can do better than this relationship. But also in a way she's doing it for her own selfish reasons. She's doing it to stick it to Hardy Jens because the biggest slap you could give in the face to somebody like Hardy Jens is to go out with his exact opposite, which is somebody who's poor, somebody who is alternative, an artist who is more feminine, exhibits all of the traits that Hardy Jens kind of despises and sees as weakness. So it's the ultimate slap in the face to be like, well, you're going to cheat on me. Fuck you. I'm going to go out with this guy. And it's going to embarrass you in front of the eyes of the hierarchy or the, the social elite at high school. What ultimately ends up happening is do Keith and Amanda Jones get together? No, Andy and Blaine do not get together at the end of this movie, which is kind of the inversion of the pretty in pink. Keith actually realizes he has feelings and he sees he actually becomes aware suddenly. I don't know how he's oblivious to this, but he becomes aware of the fact that Watts is into him and he's actually into Watts. It's like a last minute Hail Mary. So basically the last minute, the movie inverts what you think is going to happen. But we're trained to think that that's not going to happen because of Pretty in Pink. If this movie had came up before Pretty in Pink, you would expect him to get with Amanda Jones. So Andy gets with Ducky at the end of this movie. Basically, I think I think that this is what the do-over is. This is the yeah, oh, this this is the original ending to Pretty in Pink. This is the ending that Hughes wanted to film, but everybody pushed back against it. Well, he did film it, didn't he? But they they changed it in test screenings. Yeah, yeah, they changed it entirely. I th- I think they he liked that original ending, and and he just 
he might have built a film around that original ending. This is what he really wanted to happen. That, dear listener, is why we're talking about it in relation to Pretty in Pink, because you, you can't have one without the other. You really can't. If you go through watching this, then and if you've never seen it before, then you would think, I've seen this movie before. You know, what is it? Or or it's like right in the back of your mind, like, where have I seen this? Who are I know I know these characters. You're thinking the entire time, like, oh, I've already watched this movie. But in actuality, you you're just watching a sequel. We'll get to the million dollar question in a bit though, because I am curious as to your your ranking of this beside Pretty and Pink. I think I already know the answer, but I think mine as mine is definitely veered, um, which is enough to give it away what I think about this movie. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the cast a little bit because the cast I think is wonderful in this movie, just as I think the cast is wonderful in Pretty in Pink. The titular character, not the titular, that means it would be some kind of Keith. No, yeah. we're talking about <laughs> the main character, Keith, played by Eric Stoltz. Okay, so Eric Stoltz. I would say played brilliantly by Eric Stoltz. Do you know that Eric Stoltz is 61 right now? I mean, that makes sense. Uh, he looks great for his age still. He was probably in his, I don't know, early to mid-20s when he made that, maybe. I guess his breakout role was in Cameron Crowe's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And then after that, he appeared in his next four films, which is The Wildlife, Say Anything, Singles, and Jerry Maguire. He's in, wow, yeah, he is in all of those movies. That's wild. <laughs> Other than that, you may know Eric Stoltz. I think a lot of people our age group and upwards would know him from the movie Mask with Cher. Now, if you don't know what that is, DL is now, go and Google it. It's kind of a bonkers movie. It involves a lot of facial prosthetics. True story, too. Yeah, based on a true story. It's a pretty good movie, actually. It's pretty good. He actually got a Golden Globe nomination for playing the character Rocky in that movie. Infamously, we'll not go into it too much, but obviously infamously, everybody knows that he was cast as Marty McFly in Back to the Future. He filmed some scenes in that and then was ultimately replaced by Michael J. Fox. That's like the one thing that always comes up about Eric Stoltz. I don't think he'll ever escape that. I wish, I almost wish that never came out because I feel like that's overshadowed his career and everything else he's done. Later on during the 90s, he didn't, he had some movies, uh, Pulp Fiction notab noticeably in 1994, which outside of this is my favorite performance by him. And then later on through the years, the late 90s and in the early 2000s, a lot of TV stuff. I can't think of anything post Pulp Fiction of note for me personally with him in movie wise. I was just looking through his stuff and I'm trying to think of find something else that I was like, oh yeah, that one. I mean, he's a he's a journeyman actor. He's been in a bazillion things, but oddly nothing that's going to pop out over all these other uh, films that we just mentioned. You know what I like about Eric Stoltz and why I like him in this role is I do think you could you could hot swap Eric Stoltz and take him out of this role. You could. And I think what I like about Eric Stoltz is probably the reason why they didn't choose him ultimately for Back to the Future is I feel like there is like, I don't like a darkness to Eric Stoltz. He is not conventionally handsome. He's very cat-like. He he's very almost feline-like, his features. I don't know, it's hard to describe. There's like, he seems like he'd be really good at playing a psychopath. There's something about him. There's like an edge to him that he doesn't come across. He's not, con he's not conventional at all. And I think it's his look and the way he acts. Voice is very interesting too, especially when you rewatch this movie. He has like a very specific, like a very soft voice when he speaks. He's just different. I like that about him. It's an interesting casting choice. I can't imagine all the people who probably went out for this role and how he ultimately nailed it down. I think he does a spectacular job in this that is almost understated in a way. Okay, let me ask you this then. 
as the main character, is he as much of a knock it out the park casting as Molly Ringwald as Andy? He's not really, let's be fair, but he's really good. I think you could still play this. You could still swap him out for somebody else and this character would still work. But I feel like you cannot remove Molly Ringwald from Pretty in Pink. No, no, not at all. I mean, that's kind of an iconic role, I think. And him, yeah, you probably could, but he still made some really interesting choices, I think. Someone could have approached it with almost a more, I don't know, like a like goofy choices or dumb, but like there's a, there's a great scene where they're in a gas station and Hardy comes up or they pull up and he, and he has to pump their gas. It must be a state law. I have no idea. He he plays like a really kind of quiet, subtle, stoic, essentially teenager, which that's my main gripe with most of these movies is they're they're all like t- 25 and 30 year old people playing teenagers where the the teenagers of that time would look more like his sister should have been more like like that so there there's a there's a certain amount of confidence that he brings to it a bit of stoicism that he brings to it but then you also get those those aloof like i don't know what's going on like what do you mean sort of choices like it, it, when you're talking about him and Watts and that relationship right there it's it's so strange to me to think that he can't figure out uh, how much Watts really likes him it's i mean because it's everything's kind of on front street you know it portrays Keith's character the fact that we're supposed to believe that he doesn't understand that Watts likes him because Keith's very smart very smart yeah and stoic's a good take because he does play him he plays him with like this quietness that he has to him and you're right yeah that does portray his character because he would know that Watts is obsessed with him and then moving on then let's talk about Watts so Watts uh the character of Watts is played by Mary Stuart Masterson I did mention in terms of perfect casting Molly Ringwald as Andy I think this casting is as good I you could not in my opinion have this character played by anybody else other than Mary Stuart Masterson I think she is perfect in this movie. I think she steals the movie from everybody else. She is just wonderful in this performance, in my opinion. She's really good. I mean, I could see, I'm just trying to think at that time, who was, who were the other heavy hitters of that time? Cause she was, she was pretty, uh, her, uh, Leah Thompson, maybe, maybe Winona was big at that time. I don't really remember that time. I think maybe Winona was a little bit too young, maybe for that for that part. I mean, she is four years younger than Eric Stoltz, to put that into perspective. She's four years younger. So if they were at high school, she would have been way below him. And she does read younger though, too. I don't think she looks younger than Stoltz, but she reads younger as a character. But she got her breakout appearance was in 1975 in the movie, The Stepford Wives. And she took a break from 1975 to 1985. She was really young in Stepford Wives. 1985, she returned in a movie called Heaven Help Us, which I've never seen. She's in the Sean Penn, Christopher Walken starring movie At Close, At Close Range, Range, which I've never yeah. seen. You've never seen that? No. Is it good? You, you have to watch that. Oh, okay. That's on the list. That's on the list. Future episode, perhaps. Yeah. That's on the list. <laughs> I, 100% I would do that. Okay. Well, in the next year, that's when she put out, she was in some kind of wonderful. So it's 1986 and 1987. And then she really... I mean, there's a bunch of stuff she's been in, but nothing that I can particularly pull out apart from in 1991, um, Fried Green Tomatoes, which I think a lot of people have seen, alongside Johnny Depp in Betty and June, which is a good movie. Bad Girls with Madeline Stowe, Annie McDowell, and Drew Barrymore, which is like the female-led Western, like an alternate Western of the Old West, which is very much of its time. 
alongside Christine Slater in the romantic drama Bed of Roses, which is mm, not very good. I mean, at that period, it's not the best movie from that period of Christine Slater's at all. After that, we're going into Law and Order territory. We're going into television, just like just like Stoltz did in a way. So her career is kind of off after that. She's not really in too much else. Nothing of note, in my opinion. She is coming back in 2023 in the Five Nights at Freddy's movie. She's playing Aunt Jane. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I've heard of it. I haven't seen the trailer for it yet. It's terrible. looks terrible. It yeah. looks exactly <laughs> as bad as you think it's going to be. I think she's perfect in the movie. I think she's absolutely perfect. I love her character. She has some really good deliveries. There's some moments too where she's confronting Keith, specifically in the scene where they meet at the bar and she's like, why didn't you bring Amanda Jones? And, and she's like, does she not have ID? And Keith's like, well, everybody has ID. But then she confronts him and she's like, you know, like I, you, you're ignoring me. I don't think we can be friends anymore. I don't think our relationship can sustain itself like this any longer. And he's like, oh, what? I'm totally oblivious to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She has like tears in her eyes. Her eyes are welling up and it's so affecting. Every time I watch that scene, it just crushes me. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about her in this movie. Okay. So no love triangle is complete without its third leg. So, so who's the third leg? The third leg would be Leah Thompson, who, in my opinion, is kind of like the Blaine surrogate in this movie. So yeah, kind of like the yeah. Andrew McCarthy character surrogate yep, in this movie. 100%. Except, yeah. interestingly enough, though, not like Blaine in the sense that she's not born into money. She's from the wrong side of the tracks, just like Keith is, uh, very much from a working class family. But she is using the currency that she has, which is her looks, to move out of her social uh, stratosphere. And then she's dating the school hunk, Cardi Jen. So she's moving in that circles now, but she doesn't belong there. And I think all of her friends, she's aware of the fact that everybody else thinks she doesn't belong there. You can sense that she's aware of the fact that this isn't a real friendship. This is just based around her popularity and how the game's being played. So there's kind of a sadness to Leah Thompson. That's a good take. There is a sadness to that character 100% because she knows she doesn't belong. Now, Leah Thompson, one year older than Eric Stoltz. Hmm. Well, they, they look the same age in that movie. Well, you know what's kind of crazy is you could cast them in brother and sister and you could totally, and it would work because they kind of look like brother and sister. I read into that what you will. Now, her career uh, started in 1982, 1983 with Jaws 3D. Oof, not a good start. And then you go Red Dawn. <laughs> yeah, Red Dawn, wonderful movie. All the right moves, great movie. Obviously, I think most people uh, definitely most people listening to the show would probably recognize her the most from how she plays Lorraine McFly in Back to the Future trilogy or more famously Marty McFly's mom. She's perfect in that movie. I think that's her best performance and I think she's just wonderful in that movie. I do really like her in Space Camp. Have you seen Space Camp? I, I don't think so. I, yeah, I'm I'm looking down the list right now. I do not. It's fun. It's very much off its time. It's not a good movie, but it's a movie I remember from my childhood. And Howard the Duck. She's wonderful in Howard the Duck. Actually, she's kind of great in Howard the Duck. She's Howard the Duck's love interest. That's all we need to say about that. Her character, yeah, uh, procreates with Howard the Duck. So <laughs> that movie is troublesome on a lot of different levels. That's quite an oddity. Into some kind of wonderful... So she did some kind of wonderful after Howard the Duck. Yeah, she did. Wow. It's a year later, but that's interesting. Into the Twilight Zone with her too. The Beverly Hillbillies, Little Rascals. Um, and then back into TV, Law and Order pops up. So a lot, a lot of uh, some kind of wonderful <laughs> alumni is going on to do this. Interesting. Did you know Zoe Dutch, the actress, is Leah Thompson's daughter? No, no, I did not. Well, that's crazy. 
anybody listening, Zoe Dutch is a fabulous actress. She's in, have you seen that movie, The Outfit? Yes, I have. She's in that. Yeah. That, that's her daughter. Oh, I, yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea. Wow. She's good in this movie. I, again, I think of the main three characters, she could easily be swapped out to. I don't think there's anything particularly wonderful about her performance. I think her character is very well written, but I don't think she is as in the pocket casting wise as Mary Stuart Westerson is. She could have been swapped out for anybody. That's that character is is interchangeable with the with anyone really. We covered the the love triangle, the main three, the tripod, if you will. Yeah. The main three characters. <laughs> We've talked about Craig Schaefer's character, Hardy Jens. Craig Schaefer's career is kind of interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if he's been on Law and Order, Order too. I bet you has. <laughs> God, he's made a lot of terrible shit recently. I just, I remember him most from like Nightbreed. I was going to bring that up, honestly. I mean, yeah, he's done CSI, American Horror Story, like Psych, Criminal Minds, like a lot of the usual shit. But yeah, I think most people would recognize Craig Schaefer outside of this movie, probably more for Nightbreed than this movie. Or A River Runs Through It. Fire in the Sky, too, if you're a fan of that movie, which I am, you probably recognize him from that. That's not that big of a movie, though. I like him better, though. And I think one of his better roles is from uh, That Was In This Is Now. I haven't seen that. Oh, with uh, Emilio Estevez? No, I haven't seen it. It's a novel from... Oh, The Outsiders, S.A. Hinton. That's probably one of those movies now that you, it's out of print. Yeah, it's just one of those movies that kind of went under the radar. But I mean, it was like when Estevez was kind of still in his Repo Man stage almost. I definitely want to see if I can catch that, track it down. I think that's going to be hard to find. But yeah, he's great. Uh, Craig Schaefer's great in Nightbreed. Well, is he great in Nightbreed? No, Nightbreed's a great movie. Yeah. I don't think it's particularly <laughs> great. You could take him out of that movie. He's just, you know, good movie though, Nightbreed. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's based on the Clive Barker novel cabal i think that's what the novel's called and it's changed in a nightbreed and it is also has isn't david cronenberg in that movie he is david cronenberg plays the masked serial killer who's hunting down the special people so that's david cronenberg you're right good movie if you can track it down i think nowadays there's like 4k a lot of those vinegar syndrome those kind of like boutique dvd places i'm sure there's like a 4k version of it it's very much a cult classic movie yeah 100 percent. that's a big recommend to you listeners if you haven't seen it if you like uh kind of goofy horror movies um okay so we can't really finish talking about the casting of this movie unless we talk about elias Cotias. <laughs> yeah 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 the oldest high schooler of them all <laughs> the world's oldest skinhead yeah but you know what's interesting he's the same age as eric Stolt. <laughs> he looks so aged though doesn't he look so old? He looks about as old as the principal in this movie. Yeah. He looks like a fully grown, <laughs> grown ass man in this movie. It's hilarious. I get a chuckle every time he comes on screen. But a great character. Wonderful character. Wonderful. He plays a character called Duncan, Duncan the Skinhead. I think he's just called Skinhead in the credits. I don't think he's called Duncan. Basically, I mean, he forms an unlikely relationship with Keith. Keith deliberately gets himself sent to detention because he thinks that Amanda Jones is going to be in a detention. She gets herself out of it. So Keith ends up stuck in detention long time with um, Duncan's character. Now those two have a little bit of a beef, but they form this unlikely bond because they're both from the wrong side of the tracks. Duncan sees that Keith is an underdog and he's shooting up, he's punching up, he's trying to get Amanda Jones. So he kind of starts to support him and help him out. He sets him up on his date he basically gets his father, who works as a security guard at the Hollywood Bowl. Is that the Hollywood Bowl? Yeah, it's Hollywood Bowl. It's one of my dreams to go to the Hollywood Bowl. It's like on my bucket list. 
he uses his father's connection as a security guard to let Keith and Amanda in for Keith's big epic date that he has planned. And then ultimately he comes in clutch at the end because Hardy Jens has this plot to get Amanda and Keith to his party with the intention of just beating the shit out of Keith and humiliating him. Keith becomes aware of this. Everybody becomes aware of this, but Keith decides to go anyway, anyway, knowing the risks, knowing the danger that faces to really prove a point and good for Keith for sticking up for himself. And he does stick up for himself when he's there. Thankfully, Duncan comes in at the last minute with his cronies, with his crew of uh, ragtag <laughs> crew of um, oddballs. And he basically equalizes the situation. He's like a neutralizer. He comes in, he's like, no, you're not doing shit. We're going to have fun. We're going to have a party. This is a real party. I'll take care of him. And like, I'm going to wipe the floor with your ass. I know it. You know it. Everybody here knows it. Yeah. Shit. Whatever. You know the line, the famous yeah. line. He's perfect in this movie. Perfect. They really kind of, they nailed that character for that time period too. You know, there's, there's all those little characters within this that I really can't, that I really appreciate. There's, it's real, it's smaller roles, but there's the character and I don't, I honestly don't remember his name, but uh, the character that Watts uses to try and make Keith jealous, jealous, which is, which is (laughs) such a great, like little, you know, 10 minute scene with between them and then afterwards you only see him like pushing her car and stuff like that but it's just it's just a funny little character that they really kind of they nail i find that these characters are more relatable high school characters than the characters in pretty in pink there's some there's just something about those characters in pretty in pink where they almost don't seem real in a way where these do like i i went to high school with some of these kids basically I agree. I think the characters seem more grounded in reality. I think there's something almost ethereal about Molly Ringwald in that movie and Blaine, for that matter, where they just, I don't know, like they don't feel like real human beings. Or Steph, for that matter. It almost seems like it's pretty in pink. It almost seems like it's Jane Austen's pretty in pink, you know? (laughs) I feel like it's just more grounded in general, this movie. It feels less dreamlike. There's a dreamlike quality to Pretty in Pink. And I don't know whether I'm putting that on the movie because like, sure, it's one of those movies for me. Elias Cordias' career is, I mean, honestly, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen some kind of wonderful, the movie you're going to know him the best from if you're still in our age group is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie where he plays Casey Jones, which is another really famous performance from him. Outside of that... I think out of everyone who's in this cast, he might be the most recognizable and successful. I would say so. He's done the most movies for sure. Going into like the mid nineties, he was on a run there because he was in Crash. He's in Fallen, uh, Denzel Washington movie, Apt Pupil, Thin Red Line. Zodiac, Shutter Island. He has one of those faces, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Dreamhouse, which I just rewatched recently, which is okay. It's not very good, but it was, I just kind of wanted to watch it. I mean, he's still going. He's got a movie coming out in 2023. He had a movie out in 2017, 2022. He's in a movie in 2022 called The Baker with Ron Perlman, <laughs> which is about right. And Harvey Keitel. Wow. But yeah, I love him. Um, good television credits too. Obviously, yes, he's been in CSI. Yes, he's been in Chicago Fire, the usual run of these movies. But he's also in uh, The Sopranos, but I think only one episode. Nothing else of note, really. The Killing. He's in The Killing. That's a good show. He, he's like that actor that you would recognize from everything, but couldn't for the life of you remember his name. And you know what's funny about him too is obviously his age, but he kind of looks the same. Yeah, he does. 
He's a really distinct <laughs> look. looks. Yeah, he's a handsome bugger. I like him a lot. He just seems like in real life he'd be a really cool guy. He's Canadian. Ah. That's probably why he seems cool. I do like Canadians. He's pretty cool. Um, okay, so that's the cast, really. I mean, that's all we need to talk about for the casting, really. Other than Keith's dad, who's played by the same guy. I don't know his name, but he's played by the same actor who plays. Uh, John Aston From Beverly Hills Cop, the with the infamous banana in the tailpipe moment. A great movie, too. Uh, specifically the first one. That kind of runs it up. Eric, let me ask you then. I need to know, where are you putting this next to Pretty in Pink? Man, that's that's really tough. It's really tough because there are things that I love about Pretty in Pink and there are things that I love about this movie. It's so hard because I, I like some kind of wonderful so much, but it almost seems like Pretty in Pink is in a, it's almost in a different universe and I don't know what that is, you know? I think out of all the characters in both movies, I think Eric Stoltz plays the best character in out of all the acting that happens within both movies. I think Eric Stoltz is at the top of the list just because Andy's character has this kind of this this strangeness to what her arc is in a way where Keith's character is way more grounded than Andy's character is. I would give Pretty in Pink just like a hair's like a hair's edge over it just because of how much I kind of like adore that movie but it's it's like it's really neck and neck. I think the only thing that kind of that holds uh, some kind of wonderful down is the is the Hardy character because just because of that that one note cruelness of that character where Steph I think is is more fully recognized and fleshed out and just dangerously charming the way that he's portrayed in that movie. I mean, for me, Pretty in Pink just 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 edges out just just by the the smallest margin. I can't have one with you or the other. It's the yin to the yang. It's it like really I need, is. It's yeah. the peanut butter, the jelly. I need <laughs> I need them both. I need them both in my life, and I need them on constant rotation. <laughs> I, I will swing though, because I'll swing in, in I'll favor one movie over like, you know, over the years, I've definitely swung. Oh, it's tricky. I'd say pound for pound. With Pretty in Pink, it's just like the 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 love triangle that happens is so, so ridiculous and cheesy and just so strange because those characters are so strange in a way where the triangle that happens in, in some kind of wonderful is a little bit more believable. And I... Honestly, I like the end of some kind of wonderful better than I do Pretty in Pink. The resolution, I should say. That couple of uh, Keith and Watts is far above the kind of the coupling of uh, uh, Blaine and Andy. I think for me, okay, here's here's where where I'm going to pull it pull them apart. Okay. At no point in some kind of wonderful do they have a sequence that's as affecting or as well shot or as pregnant with angst, which is a weird expression to use, than the hallway sequence in Pretty in Pink between Spader, the confrontation where Andy confronts Blaine when he comes out of class, and then Spader standing on the stairs, the camera pulls down, you can see Blaine from that overhead shot, and then the confrontation (laughs) between Blaine and Ducky, all set to the soundtrack of New Order. Nothing in some kind of wonderful is as epic, in my opinion, as that sequence, which is probably, that's my favorite sequence of any film ever. That's my favorite sequence. I could watch that and I get chills every single time I see that. So it doesn't have that standout moment. Pretty in Pink has a better soundtrack by far. I was going to say, I, I hope we talk about the soundtrack because the 
the soundtrack for some kind of wonderful is so lacking, so lacking. It's very lacking. Yeah, it's very on the head too. It is, and it there. If you can catch it, if you if you listen closely, there's an instrumental of Pretty in Pink in it. Oh, is it? I'll have to check it. I'm. It's in the credits. Like the psychedelic fuzz, like a internal. Oh, interesting. I'm gonna have to look out for that. I mean, the it's very on the head though. So you have like the Rolling Stones uh, song Amanda Jones in there briefly. Then you have a cover version of that song played by somebody else. And then noticeably you have that band who plays in the club, which is very reminiscent to the club scene in Pretty in Pink. Yeah, I was going to say the live bands in Pretty in Pink far outweigh that little that little one kind of band that was in uh, Some Kind of Wonderful. That's the March Violets, if anybody's trying to figure out who that is in Some Kind of Wonderful. The March Violets are a, they're like actually like a goth band. And it's funny because if you actually research them, which I did, the the female singer that's singing with them is only on that one record. And then I think it's not her. And then, but they're more like of a goth tinged band, but they're interesting. No, the soundtrack for Pretty in Pink is killer, like killer. It's so of its time. And I think it's, it's more iconic. Definitely. So Pretty Pink has the soundtrack. Pretty Pink has the better scene. I think Some Kind of Wonderful has a better ending. One thing that Some Kind of Wonderful has in common with Pretty Pink, in my opinion, is I still think that Watts deserves better than Keith. And I think that Andy deserves better than Blaine. Andy deserves better than Blaine and Ducky. Watts really deserves better than Keith. I feel like she should have moved on from Keith when she realized that he just was oblivious to her being into, into him. Because if he's already make, if he's already that unaware of your existence, like that doesn't bode well for the future. He's, you know, <laughs> in terms of, I don't see, okay, here we go. Like, well, if we want to get a brass taxes about it, not to be crass, but let's be honest, we're talking about 20 something actors and we're also talking about high schoolers who probably are having sex. I do not see sexual chemistry between Keith and Watts at all, between Stoltz and Masterson. There's no physical chemistry between the two of them. Really? I don't see the. Chemistry. I would disagree. I would disagree with that. Just because really, of the, just because of the gas station scene, that one, that one gets me. Where she asks him to make out with her because she wants to prep him to, for yeah, he's going to, to kiss practice. Jones, who's going to have world class? <laughs> yeah, talent. yeah, for sure. Okay, I could see I, that. I, I think that's. That I think that a little bit. I think that scene, for me at least, displays the chemistry that happens because once it happens, then he has that realization. Like, oh wait, I just don't see him sexually. Like, I don't see him being sexual and I, I don't see him being sexual with Amanda Jones and I don't see him being sexual with, it doesn't give me any kind of like fuck boy energy. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Not that he has to. Ultimately, I think, yes, I'm pleased. I think it's a better ending thematically than Pretty in Pink, but I still don't see them together. Yeah. I mean, I think he's, he's trying his best to do his, to do his best James Dean. That's like a James Dean character to me because Keith is to me, uh, which is weird because they're trying to portray it like he's this ultimate outsider. He doesn't fit in at school, this or that. To me, that character is cool, as cool as anything. He's cool as a cucumber in this movie, 100%. Even the way that he confidently, when his dad has that big showdown with him, he's holding his ground, holding it down. Dean scene, that acting scene alone was amazing. That's from where both he actors. Kind of, yeah, from oh, both yeah, actors. From both. Yeah. yeah, that's an incredible scene. So some kind of wonderful also lacks the iconic Harry Dean Stanton, which it's like, there's just something about that character. <laughs> I don't know. He's such a lovable piece of shit. <laughs> and then obviously some kind of wonderful really lacks the, the majesty of Steph uh, played by James Spader. It just doesn't have that. The older I get, and we talked about this previously, the older I get, I could take Ducky out of that movie. The, the older I get, the more and more Ducky irritates me as a character. 
less so in some kind of wonderful. Nobody really irritates me much in some kind of wonderful. Craig Schiffer's uh, Hottie Jens is no match. Very one note. It's it's really hard for me, Eric. I can't decide. <laughs> I think the writing in some kind of wonderful at parts is better. I think there's there's better writing. I think it's good writing in both. Some of, some of it, like like when at the dinner scenes or the are the scenes that take me out of it because when there's that banter between the younger daughter and the older daughter, that younger daughter, and it's one of my pet peeves is when younger kids are portrayed or written as young adults, like or adults, I should say, as adults. Like she's having these really strange this real strange kind of commentary or conversation about weird subjects. And it's like, kids don't talk like that. That's pretty egregious. I, I would have enjoyed it if that character was completely taken out. They, they have the younger sister who is this, who is the comic relief essentially. But there's a battle between those two characters where who is more of the comic relief, you know, and the whole, that whole kind of dynamic I could have done pretty much without the family dynamic i would have liked it more if it was minus one kid maybe maybe both of the sisters and then there would have been a little bit more room to grow within that family to to kind to kind of get an idea of why college one why college is so important the mother is a non-character in my opinion i would have liked to have a, a little bit more kind of relationship between keith and the mother too because we understand, I, we can put two and two together. The fact that Keith's father is blue collar, he's worked hard all his life and he's trying to keep food on the table for his family and he's doing a good job. And he understands the value of college and what it can do in terms of his son not having to work as hard as he does for the rest of his life. And I totally get that. You know, that's well written and it's well portrayed. But yeah, the mother is almost just not even, she's like a ghost. So it would be nice to probably spend more time with the mother father dynamic and flesh that side out a little bit more and get rid of the kids, which you, cause really his eldest sister only serves to drag. She only serves as like to push the plot along because she only serves her really. The only thing she actually does in the movie is push along the, the revelation to Keith that Hardy Jens is going to beat him up because that's all, that's all she actually adds to the movie. I just think though, with the writing and I mentioned it earlier on the podcast, I want to talk about it a little bit more. There's a push and pull between Keith and Amanda Jones because Amanda Jones is very aware. She's very self-aware of her situation, despite the fact that she knows that she's in a toxic relationship and she's trying to get out of it. She's still very self-aware of what's happening. When she confronts Keith and she's like, you're just doing this. You don't really want me. You just want this idolized version of me. You just want me so everybody else can see that you have me. It's not really me who you want. And I think that's really good writing. I think it's really good to give her character the agency to be a human being and the agency to not just be this lust object in this one dimensional, pretty bimbo, I hate using that term, but you know what I mean, character. It's good writing to allow her to have this self-discovery and allow her to be self-aware and allow her to, to push back against Keith, which doesn't happen in other movies. And I really like that. I think it's really good. I'm really happy with where her character ends up at the end of the movie. Okay, so we're talking about dream endings for the movie and like what makes most sense. So obviously we talked about Andy and Steph getting together at the end of Pretty in Pink in my alternate take where further down the line, she reconnects with James Spader's character and they become a thing. That's <laughs> yeah. my dream ending of that yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. I guess another good ending of this movie would be, honestly, I think it could be a good ending to just nobody get with anyone. For Watts to be like, okay, I had this crush. It's not reciprocated. 
I'm going to learn how to be friends with this guy and I'm going to move on. Keith to be like, okay, I was in this for the wrong reasons. And now I realized that's probably wasn't the best, but I'm out of the situation now. I learned from, I grew from it. Amanda Jones to be like, okay, I'm no longer with Hardy. I realize he's a piece of shit. Keith helped me realize that, helped me realize a few things about myself and who I want to be going forward. And probably the dream ending of this is that nobody gets together. For, for both movies. Probably for both movies. Yeah, actually. That would be the best for all characters involved. <laughs> because, uh, because that's real life. You know, I, think, I, I think in the end, you don't, uh, most people don't keep those relationships. So that would no, have been kind of the more school. realistic ending. But you, know, you got you to gotta make someone kiss, I guess, at the end. I mean, where would Keith and Watts be five years after this movie? Where would it be? Well, you would imagine Keith would maybe be in college at that point, at that point, and maybe Watts would have taken over his job at the gas station, or maybe in a touring band. So I don't, I don't know. Made a break in a, a musical career and pushed it. I, I hope that for. I, I wish nothing for the for the best for Watts. She is the person I think deserves happiness the most of that group. Some kind of wonderful, Eric. Closing thoughts. If you're listening to uh, this right now, it's probably still on Max. Actually, they both are. Yeah, I think they both are on Max right now. So I think a really kind of cool thing would be doing a double feature, you know, getting some friends together and doing a double feature of, the, of both of these movies and kind of having a go at them at them both, you know. And I think you could probably watch them out of order like you could do some kind of wonderful first and then pretty in pink and then vice versa too to add to that i would say listen to this podcast and listen to the pretty in pink episode in particular and then watch it along with it that podcast in particular was a lot of fun to do uh while watching the movie so i mean they both really hold a special place for me in my kind of cinema uh library and knowledge and kind of history i guess you would say pretty in pink especially is almost a a formative movie for me of its time you know i could i could go back to exactly that time and place when i watched that movie the type of person that i was and stuff like that so they're very kind of near and dear to my heart there's just something about these movies i can't quite put my finger on it it definitely plays into my romantic side or my belief in i don't know grand sweeping gestures uh, over the top emotional i don't know there's just something about it i i'm just very much in love with the concept of the 1980s high school romance and i don't know why always have been i don't know that they make i mean i don't know i don't know that i i mean it's kind of cliche to say but i don't know if they make movies like this anymore I think they do, but they don't really cast them so much in high school. And if they do, they're like Netflix rom-coms, but they're very much of their time. I don't think, I don't think these movies work outside of their time. There's something about it being like that time capsule, which is something about America at that time, music, culture. I don't know. There's just something special, I think, about that period. And that is nostalgia glasses, I think, for you and me. I think a lot of people... You know, Gen Zs or whatever on now, uh, millennials evil, even not evil, or some of them are evil. <laughs> millennials, even if you're Gen X or above, I think there's something special about this, but I don't know if it translates. I don't know. I I really I really don't know. I'm kind of curious to to know what the like millennial and Gen Z high school movies 
are like if they like if someone was to look back and be like oh that was that reminded me of my experience or my childhood or whatever of that time i'm kind of curious to to know what what that is because i have to imagine for most of them it's a marvel movie which is so unfortunate and i mean like don't get me wrong this is not my high school experience. I went to an all boys Catholic school. Yeah. I did not have this experience. And I think that's also why I romanticize this so much because this is where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to that high school. I wanted to be one of those art, freaky, weird art kids. That's what I wanted my childhood to be. My, my, that's what I wanted my high school experience to be. Mine was so the polar opposite of that. <laughs> I, w- I would say that of the two movies, my high school experience was more some kind of wonderful because it's just it, it's a little bit more grounded in reality to me well that's some kind of wonderful dear listener um, i don't really have much else for you other than thank you for listening thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast and eric thank you for just being a true original <laughs> <laughs>